You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you conversations with practitioners, authors, and scholars who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please reach out to us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. If you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. I got to say, I was I was tuning into the... Uh happy hour you just recently had awesome i mean it was so good i really enjoyed that and the russian defector i really enjoyed that one i thought that was one of the best ones that i've done so far anyway i uh that was the first one i've attended and man i was about halfway through and i was like they need to have more of these and like i'm going to be on every one that was just (laughs) that was awesome really brilliant brilliant idea i love how you have the sort of cocktail up front and um an awesome guest and just really great really really great yeah it was it was a lot of fun but basically i just want to get a sense of your story sure yeah um so i've been in the intelligence field for uh, a little more than 30 years now um but none of that has been in the traditional intelligence community so so uh, what what do you mean by that so I haven't been in any of the three-letter agencies, right? That most that that make up the the formal intelligence community, um, CIA, FBI, uh, DIA, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but um, I've been doing intelligence work in other venues in the military, um, in law enforcement, doing some some homeland security stuff, and. That's been really exciting for me uh, to to see as well, right? Both to be able to uh, practice it. I love this profession, but also as I'm getting a little older and further along in my career and able to talk to younger people who want to get in the field, giving them more options and providing them alternate paths where they can also embrace this profession, 
make real contributions to it, even if for whatever reason um, they can't um, do so within the, the traditional intelligence community. So give us a sense of how you first came to the world of intelligence. What what drew you in? Um, I was one of those kids in school who got excited when teachers would assign research projects. Um, so I always apologize in advance uh, when I'm talking to people that, yeah, I was that student who, um, when, when the teacher would say we we're going to have a term paper or a research paper, I was silently cheering in the back row, hoping nobody would see me. Um, and so as I was getting close to finishing high school, um, I was deciding whether to go to university or not. And almost on a whim, I decided to talk to some military recruiters. And upon doing that and looking at the various job opportunities were open, I stumbled upon all source intelligence analyst as one of the possibilities. And right away began asking the recruiter some questions about well, what does that involve? And he had, this was way back in the eighties. They had um, little summaries of all the jobs on these big laser discs. And there was probably some two minute commercial of what it was, but what I saw, which was trying to identify what enemy forces were gonna do on the battlefield and help your commander make better decisions. And that really appealed to me, uh, especially as a 17, 18 year old, being able to really have an impact so early in life. And uh, it was very interesting. So. I dove right in. That was what I wanted to do. That was the only job I was going to consider as soon as I saw that little advertisement. And that was the beginning. So I, right out of high school, went into the army and, and became a, uh, an intelligence analyst. So you would not have joined the army if you could not have been an intelligence analyst? No, it was, I, and I remember I spent a lot of time going through the catalog of the various job descriptions. Um, my stepfather had spent a couple years in the Air Force in the 60s. He was a, um, I think he was a, uh, a signals intelligence interceptor. And the only advice he told me was do not go into signals intelligence. Um, he had a very boring experience in the Philippines doing that. And he said, just don't do that. Whatever else you choose, I will support you 100%. So uh, I took that advice, uh, but intelligence analysts really sort of hit all of the buttons for me um, in that it was this idea of sort of solving these sort of complex questions and pulling in various forms of information and synthesizing it and then hopefully influencing um, for the better the decisions that uh, that a commander was going to make right away. I mean all of that just sort of just sort of set me off. I was just really uh, entranced with that idea. And, and give us a, a sense of what that involves. So for, for people that have never been in the U.S. Army, in fact, even for people that have been, um, because quite often the foot doesn't know what the hand is doing. Um, what does what does it entail being an analyst uh, for the U.S. Army in the 1980s? What kinds of intelligence were you synthesizing? What were some of the core competencies or skills that you were developing? So I was, at least initially, I was stationed in West Germany back when there was a Federal Republic of Germany. And we, our main mission was to deter and prevent if it occurred a invasion 
by the Warsaw Pact. Now, I was a junior level analyst, so really I was essentially an apprentice, right? I was learning, I wasn't doing, I wasn't talking to the fifth corps commander about what courses of action uh, were available to him and, and what the Soviets might do. But uh, we did have a little patch of territory that we were gonna be responsible for. I was in a, a brigade headquarters and the, um, the work that I would do was really supporting the more senior analysts, the senior non-commissioned officers and the senior officers who were looking at new equipment that was being fielded uh, with, in the Soviet divisions. And what did the terrain look like? And what were the likely avenues of approach that those Soviets might take if they did uh, conduct an invasion? And so I would support them, right? Um, and a lot of that initially was kind of grunt work, sort of just data work and reading the intelligence reports that were coming through. When we would go to the field, which we did fr quite frequently, it was updating the situation map, which was uh, the map which the commander and the command team referred to all the time when they wanted to get a sense of what was happening on the battlefield, right? And that for me was the most fun because that was where there was a lot happening, very high tempo, long hours, um, and I was responsible, at least when I was on, for making sure the intelligence information that was coming into that headquarters talk, that operations center, was accurate. Um, being able to filter through and identifying what information was of critical importance that you needed to go to the commander right away with and say, this is, this is different, and what could go within the regular sort of tempo and we can brief this at the next shift change. It's not as important, that sort of thing. So that was a lot of fun to see. And for people that have never served in Germany, I I had the, the good fortune to do so, but after the Berlin Wall had came down. So give, give listeners that have never been to Germany or that don't know Germany very well, like where were you? How did your unit fit within the broader scheme of things and so forth? Sure, so I was in the 1st Brigade, 8th Infantry Division, which was stationed uh, out of Mainz, Germany, which is about 30, 45 minutes from Frankfurt. And uh, at that time, really interesting, Germany was and is a very populous country. There's a lot going on there. Uh, but then there were, uh, I don't hold me to this, but uh, maybe 100,000 troops. There was a lot of U.S. military presence in Germany. So uh, you almost always saw convoys going here or there. There were large and small training uh, grounds kind of everywhere around the country. And in order to do that training, you are um, oftentimes in those very towns. You're traveling through those towns. So a lot of interaction with, with the public um, when you're sort of doing your official work. And that was, um, it always sort of drove home how relevant the work was, right? Um, it, we weren't stuck on a base um, with just thousands of um, square miles of sort of training area, um, only interacting with contractors, for example. But you were actually in, in the ground you were going to be defending, which, which um, was really, I'm um, trying to think of the words here, but it, it really brought it home for an 18, 19 year old um, as you were able to look across the inter-German border and see the East German observation towers just a, just a mile or so away. 
And certainly when we would do training events closer to the border, um, hopefully this doesn't sound cliched, but um, it was moving to, uh, to be driving through some of these towns and have people come out and wave to you. And, um, you know, the cliche was the closer you got to the border, the more and more you were appreciated. And, um, uh, and our German hosts were always very gracious to me, but, but certainly I found that to be true as well as the closer you got to the border, um, people definitely seem to appreciate us uh, even more. Yeah. I wondered if you could just tell us about how that concept intelligence was stretched or molded or changed over the years that you worked underneath its umbrella. It, it, it did quite a bit and it, it was a real challenge. When I first left the military and began to work law enforcement intelligence, um, it was it was through a military program called the National Guard Counter Drug Program, but um, they embedded uh, people like me into law enforcement agencies to help them do some of the intelligence work. And the only advice I got from my uh, boss at that time was, "Don't worry, it's the exact same as what you did in the army." And my only experience in the army, like I mentioned, was worrying about where the Eighth Guards Army was going to cross the German border. And now. I was getting questions like, well, is the price of heroin going to go up or down? Um, where is, where is uh, crack cocaine? What are the transportation mechanisms uh, in which it's going to get to this small town? Which, uh, at least initially and for, for a few months afterwards, was a really difficult transition, trying to take those skills I learned looking at a state military into smaller non-state actors and try to figure out, did, did this training even apply? How do I do that? Um, and it was probably a more painful transition than it needed to be and should have been. Uh, Why but, is that? Uh, just because I, you know, transitioning from uh, military to let's say law enforcement, uh, there was, and this would have been in the late, very late 90s, um, there was no really good um, transition program. So everything about law enforcement was brand new. Um, essentially, I walked in knowing what I had seen from movies and television, and I had to learn what probable cause really means and what are the laws and regulations that guide the handling of information, um, which is very different in law enforcement than in the national security realm. And um, just how those organizations work. You know, when you're used, the military has its own organizational culture and law enforcement has a very different organizational culture. Uh, and so getting used to those and how those bureaucracies work, um, all of that sort of really affects the intelligence um, analysis as well. So building all that contextual knowledge took probably more time than it needed to because it was it was kind of all uh, trial and error, right? It was all hit, you know, it was all sort of self, self-learned. I would say the transition from military to law enforcement was, um, like I indicated, very difficult, but once I had learned it, then it really opened up all sorts of doorways because seeing it in those two very different frames allowed me to be able to distill some of the lessons that could, you could apply kind of anywhere which was very helpful. So um, 
from there, going to, um, well, deploying to Afghanistan um, in 2003, and then into a domestic counterterrorism uh, analytic environment, um, those transitions were much easier because of the sort of uh, range of experiences in which I had already done some some intelligence work. But it was really important to get that uh, to get those that broad range of experience first. Um, I guess maybe some of this sounds rather you know straightforward and common, but it really was important to to sort of suffer a little bit in the wilderness um, to. Uh, you know, to to experience that transition um, and learn about how different organizations function differently, expect different things from from intelligence, um, and um, and what remains the same across those. And now I'm in the private sector, and again, a bit of a transition uh, because uh, military and law enforcement are more similar than them and private sector, and now you have a new set of decision makers who have different expectations, um, many of whom do not bring the preconceived notions of what intelligence is or should be that um, those in government uh, service have. So it sounds as if after that initial uh, adjustment from the military to law enforcement, it sounds like after that, the subsequent adjustments or readjustments were were much easier, but that initial one was quite jarring. Is that right? Yeah, I would say that was a, a very jarring one. I was fortunate, um, maybe two years in, to get a mentor um, who really helped me understand on a on a deep level the workings of sort of state government and bureau and and sort of state government bureaucracies, which it was um, it was a it was a challenging lesson, but it was a, it was a really good one. Um, and this was somebody who had, I think, 20 years service with um, with um, the state of New Jersey that I I had um, I was working with, and was really able to sort of highlight sort of the relationships, the connections, um, the um, factors behind policy decisions that may not um, may not occur to somebody who only had a military background. Right, where you tend to be much more mission focused, um, and then I'd say the second, uh, the second biggest transition was public sector to private sector, and for me, um, being a public servant um, was something I imagined doing my entire life, and I really, really loved it. It was central to my identity, and I found myself after a change of administrations, um, no longer in the public sector. So um, I would say that. It wasn't as long, but it, it was probably a good four months where I felt a little untethered, um, thinking, gee, do I have a role here? Am I relevant? Um, can I be as relevant? Um, and then things eventually began to click once I, again, got used to the culture and understood sort of the, the tempo of, um, of private sector. And give us more of a flavor of some of the things that you've done for New Jersey over those years. So I know that um, in, uh, in some of the research that I've done for this interview, I know that at one point you were involved in compiling uh, what was at the time a very cutting edge compendium of, of street gangs. And I believe that once upon a time you were almost run out of town with a, 
a pitchforked yeah. mob. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more yeah. about that? So um, I was I had worked for the um, New Jersey State Police for um, about 11 years, I think it was uh, 10 or 10 years, maybe. And part of my job at that point is we did a, a triannual street gang survey and it was an attempt to um, street gangs were um, a serious problem throughout the state of New Jersey. And we really wanted to understand the scope of them. Right. There was we would get anecdotal reports, there would be occasional press reports, but we never really had a good sense of um, what is the scope of the threat. Um, are these people committing crimes or are they just sort of um, scaring people by the way they're dressed and all that sort of thing? So we, um, it was a, a small crew of us, we undertook a, to try to do a census across the entire state. Um, so New Jersey, not a big geographic state, um, but pretty populous, about eight or nine million people, and had has 560 municipalities, most most of which have their own law enforcement department. So it's kind of a logistical nightmare. Um, and we set out to um, interview and survey every one of those police departments, um, and had pretty extensive questionnaires. We wanted to get a sense of um, are there street gangs in those jurisdictions? If so, about how many people um, are in them? And, and more specifically, what kind of crimes are they involved in? And then some more interesting, from my point of view, stuff about are they in conflict with other criminal organizations um, or are they cooperating with other ones, right? Trying to get some of that information that um, an Intel an analyst really needs if they're gonna um, try to figure out what the operating environment looks like. So um, the, we compiled those, um, did the analysis on them. The thing that I'm most proud of is we made those findings public. Um, I really felt strongly as an Intel analyst that as, as much as possible, we should um, push information down to the lowest classification level possible, even if that means fully unclassified. And as a public servant, we should our value to the people who sign our paychecks, right? The taxpayer, they should see what they're getting as much as possible. So um, we put those reports out and we were very nervous the first few times we did that because we, um, uh, our, our public hadn't seen information like that before. So we really didn't know how would they, would they use the data? Would they ignore it? Would they, um, would they not like it? And, and generally it was well received. There was one town though in uh, 2010, I think the last time we did, uh, the last time I was involved in that um, project before I moved over to Homeland Security, um, there was one town that didn't like, we had identified that they had a, a couple gang members, mostly who had transited through the town, maybe gotten some fights or sold a little bit of marijuana, but really nothing beyond sort of traditional small town sort of scuffles and, and things like that. This town did not appreciate that at all. Um, and uh, they called me and some some folks from our organization in to talk to some town councilmen. We explained our methodology. Um, everything seemed to be okay. And the mayor said, gee, that makes perfect sense. Do you mind coming to our next town council meeting? Because we think there might be some people who have some questions. Only be about 10 or 15 minutes. Um, I'm always excited to talk about the products that we write and anyone who wants to talk about Intel, I could do that all day. So I left at the opportunity and it was like that scene out of Frankenstein where the um, 
townsfolk come after Dr. Frankenstein because I was um, pilloried for about three hours, um, and it was uh, people were trying to convince me that um, my product, we're going to close all the businesses in the town, drive down real estate values, um, was going to ruin everyone's life. Everyone was terrified to live in the town. Uh, and I, uh, as patiently as possible, um, explained the methodology again, um, explained that the results were the identical results that were well, almost identical results that we had published three years before and uh, nobody's businesses had gone bankrupt uh, as a result. Um, I, I don't know if I won over um, many people, but that trial by fire was one of the high points of my career. It was so instructive and it was so useful to have to defend your work um, in front of a hostile audience for an extended period of time. Uh, and when I've had some junior analysts under me, I've um, encouraged them to sort of seek, not seek out confrontation, but seek out those challenging opportunities to defend your work because it will force you to um, A, make sure you do the work right the first time, uh, but also become sort of super familiar with all the ins and outs of your work and begin to anticipate those sort of um, questions and challenges you might get in the future. In fact, what town was that? Can you tell us? Um, you could Google it, I think. Uh, I, I don't know if I want to um, put them on the... Well, it was 11 years ago, so I guess it doesn't matter. Uh, it was Heightstown, New Jersey. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> what, they what? were very nice people. Um, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't think the audience of, uh, of this podcast would um, troll them or, uh, or you know... Um, give them a hard time, but uh, they, they were coming from a, a good place. They were concerned about their town, absolutely. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Just to bring this uh, to to life a little bit more. Tell us about one of the street gangs and the lens that you cast on them and the types of benefits that, that applying an intelligence framework to street gangs would bring. Sure. Um, so around the time of one of those um, surveys, uh, there was a gang called MS-13, which has a um, particularly brutal reputation. And they were... Um, there were a number of uh, attacks and homicides that occurred in the Washington DC area around that time. And so, so um, as things happen in DC, uh, you can imagine agencies like where the, the FBI who's headquartered in DC and other sort of national agencies that focuses their attention and the information they then put out to state and locals tends to have be viewed through that um, prism, right? So we were getting a lot of information about MS-13, MS-13, MS-13. Um, and so we were able to determine that at least 
with regard to New Jersey, we did have a small presence, but they weren't they weren't our you know in the in the top tier of biggest threats for us. Um, and so that was very useful in terms of allowing decision makers to know where to put their their resources, their investigative resources, right? Um, maybe MS-13 for New Jersey isn't where we should be doing that. Maybe it is this sort of local blood set that we um, need to worry about a little more because they're expanding, have more members, um, controlling more neighborhoods, that sort of thing. And was were gangs a particular problem at that period of time, or or, or is this just a perennial issue? Um, certainly, in the nine or ten years that I was working that with the state police, I mean, they were they were both they were a serious issue and they were a perennial issue. They were um, something that um, I don't want to say they had sort of become part of life in the state uh, for, for parts of the state and um, you know sometimes attracted more attention than others but they were always there and and there was sort of quite a bit of criminal activity that was associated with with those groups and to what extent is there a, a kind of indigenous gang culture in New Jersey and to what extent is it like more of a a spillover from New York and Philadelphia or or national gangs like the Bloods and the Crips? That was one of our interesting findings. I really, I really enjoyed figuring that out. I would say when we started, we had a lot more what you might call local or neighborhood gangs, which just like they sound, group of people who go to school together, grew up together, um, start, you know, engaging in criminal activity together. And, and they're sort of, they don't know what's going on in the next town over, they don't care, they're sort of an autonomous um, unit. And then, you know, late, late 90s, early 2000s, we saw sort of much more of a franchise model where you saw some gangs had achieved national prominence. And so it became in the best interests of some of these neighborhood gangs to adopt that, uh, that national name because that came with some additional status um and um perhaps some benefits and there were always attempts by some of these gangs that had sort of um nationwide um presence to organize but that never really worked out particularly well um because ultimately these were still sort of local neighborhood groups and um yes i will sort of swear fealty um, on some level, but like I'm not going to let you control what I'm doing day to day, and I'm only going to give up so much of my profit before uh, before I determine like no more. So even within the same gang group, let's say the Bloods or the Crips, you would see competition between sets of them, um, and uh, so that was a you know another finding was oftentimes these gangs would be almost described as sort of a nationwide sort of underground army almost where you know the right person in command could snap their fingers and they would all fall into line and it was nothing at all like that right it was much more um much more tenuous lines of connection or communication if they existed at all one of the things that struck me there i had a jump cut in mind you know like a jump cut in the movies where it ends in one scene and then it reappears somewhere else and when you were discussing that there, I was just thinking about Afghanistan and about the insurgency there and about 
the patchwork quilt of different groupings and uh, you know interconnections and realignments and so forth. So I, I guess the question is, to what extent were you able to apply some of this methodology that you were applying in New Jersey and then and then take it when you get deployed to Afghanistan? It's two thousand and three four. You're there, right? Yeah, two thousand three four, and it was in the um, in the area of Bagram Airfield. So you know, my comments sort of apply to that time and place. Um, I understand other people may have very different experiences there, but um, for for there, it was interesting. I felt my experience working with law enforcement was much more helpful than the original training I got from the army when I was in Afghanistan. And, and um, the, certainly the reservists and national guardsmen who had experience in law enforcement, particularly those who were detectives and investigators, seemed to have a much easier time sort of understanding the landscape um, than, than, than folks who didn't have that, that experience. Um, but yeah, for me, it felt very much like the work I, I did when I was looking at street gangs and trying to identify um, various centers of gravity, which individual has in, positional influence and which has you know, influence among their peers, um, even if they don't have the rank. And how is this town's group interact with this town or this group of nomads? And what's the interplay there? Um, and then how does our presence um, jumble up those uh, those relationships um, or um, competition. Yeah. What, why do you think the law enforcement people had an easier time of it? Is it just because the army's still in the, there's these things called states and they have armies and, you know, they're, they have tanks and, you know, everything's very structured and ordered, whereas for law enforcement, Sure, there's some organized crime, but a lot of it's just sporadic and organic. And um, when I when I arrived in Bagram, one of my first assignments uh, was uh, a request to identify the avenues of approach that the Taliban could take if they were going to overrun Bagram Airfield. Like that was never going to happen. Uh, I think at that point we had twelve or thirteen thousand troops on Bagram. Like there was no way uh, the Taliban was going to be able to organize a huge conventional force and sort of overrun uh, us. So that it was on some level at that time. I think the military was still parts of the military at least were still getting their heads around what kind of fight we were going to have, whereas um, the law enforcement folks I. I knew that were in uniform. You put them in a village; they it it felt almost like home. Who they knew? There's somebody in the town who's connected to every and knows everybody, knows every family member, and they would start away and go, "I need to find out who those people are. Who are the people who know? Who are the people who have influence? Um, maybe it's not the mayor or the local commander, but it's the local shopkeeper or the local imam. Who is that person?" Um, who is the, the, the family of troublemakers, right? That's always causing problems regardless of what the cause is. And so they were immediately able to sort of get into the, that mindset, which was, which was super useful. And also when we're talking about human sources, right? Um, and the, um, the 
the human teams that were there were amazing, but also the law enforcement folks who were used to talking to confidential informants and used to just talking, not just informants, but just used to talking to people in a neighborhood and finding out what's going on, what's different, you know. Um, those questions and being able to sort of approach those problems from that perspective were very helpful. And was your expertise in these various spheres ever utilized, or do you think it was utilized in the way you would have liked it to have been? Um, gee, I don't, well, oh, that's a tough question. Uh, I guess I'd answer that question in two ways. One, I was, so I was a mid-level non-commissioned officer then, <clears throat> excuse me. And in 2003, it felt like a mid-career or a, a mid-level non-commissioned officer. I, I felt like I had a lot of latitude um, to follow intelligence questions down within within my area of operations, and so that was um, that was useful and fulfilling. How useful was that work I did? I don't know. I mean, there were so many, there were so bigger forces were at play. Um, and you could certainly see that. And so did I have an impact? I don't know. I mean, I remember taking off and, and leaving uh, Afghanistan thinking I didn't have any impact at all here. And it was very disappointing. Uh, but um, there might have been sort of little wins, but there was there was so much that was that was just pay grades way, way above me that um, that I don't know if I would have I, I don't know, even under the best of circumstances, if I could have turned that battleship at all. And certainly at that time, I remember we had a conversation from the J2, that would be the head of intelligence um, there. And he said, look, we gotta, we're going to have to just do more with less here. Um, because if there's a really cool operation in Afghanistan and a really cool operation in Iraq, we ain't going to get the reinforcements and we're not going to get the resources. It's all going there. So um, there, at least for me, my perception was there was a feeling that Afghanistan's kind of on um, autopilot and it's, it's kind of getting better. 2003 was a fairly calm time, especially compared to where Iraq was going at the time. And so uh, I would have liked us to have been a little more ambitious in, in areas and, and do some more stuff, but you know, it was what it was. And, and, and just to give uh, the interview a little bit more context, you're, you're from New Jersey, Dean? Yeah, I'm, I'm New Jersey born and raised, yeah. Uh, I'm a Pennsylvania resident now, but still close to the Garden State. It's, okay. it's still got a, a place in my heart. So the, one of the reasons I ask that is that you, during your career, 9-11 happened and 9-11 and had a huge impact on the, the people in the state of New Jersey. So I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about your 9-11 story, where you were, how you found out about everything and, and then how, how that leads into you ending up in Afghanistan. So it was... Um... I was actually working for the Pennsylvania Office of Attorney General at that point, um, again, working with their narcotics folks. And I was driving into work when I heard it. Um, and much like everyone else, when I got into the office, everyone was huddled around a TV. Um, we were sort of 
glued to that for um, a couple hours. And then the word began trickling out for people to just go home. Uh, and I was also in the National Guard at that time. And uh, I think everyone in my unit was uh, busily calling the poor administrative, uh, you know, the, the poor full-time uh, soldier who was on duty saying like, okay, we're ready to go. Like, what do you want us to do? And uh, of course it was far too soon for any plans to come through, but, but we were all ready. About a month later, um, the, maybe it was just a couple of weeks later, the airport security mission came through and I volunteered to, to do that, working for, working at a small airport in Eastern Pennsylvania, Lehigh Valley International Airport. Um, and that lasted um, almost until when I got my orders to go to Afghanistan. What was supposed to be a six month tour got extended eventually to about 10 months. And uh, then when I came back, I transitioned to the New Jersey State Police and was back working crime, but uh, terrorism was always uh, sort of ever present, right? That was the new top priority kind of for everyone. Um, and many of the folks that, um, that were in the New Jersey State Police were ones who had responded on 9-11, right? So they all had their own um, stories, perspectives that sort of influenced everything they did from, from years on from there, yeah. One of the things that I also find fascinating about your career is you just mentioned that there, the variety of threats went from Soviet, the Soviet uh, forces in East Germany to organized crime to drug lords to street gangs to insurgents to homegrown terrorists uh, there's just been such a variety and I wonder if you could speak a little bit about some of those various threats that you've that you've been dealing with yet yeah, it's, it's it's interesting and this is uh, something I think people not in the field can be a bit jarring is Particularly when I had, you know, when I was supervising a, a, an intel team, you do. Uh, it's funny the way uh, as, as you research these particular individuals or groups, um, or you find more information about them, or you, you know, move forward in a case, you can get really excited uh, about these things and we might not have the right language to describe it, right? Because I can remember some of my junior analysts talking about how much they really like Al-Qaeda, you know, or they're really into white supremacy. They, of course, don't need it in the way most people would interpret it. They're just, um, they find it fascinating, right? And they, um, and so with each one of these um, sort of entities that I've looked at over over time, I've gotten... I don't know, enthusiastic uh, about each one. Um, probably the Soviets probably got the less, the least amount of enthusiasm because I was so young and I don't think I was able to really appreciate um, them as much as an opponent. Uh, but um, for each one is a new challenge, right? And this is what makes the profession so amazing to me is we're talking about human beings, human behavior um, and their motives and trying to understand those and mitigate the threats caused by them is endlessly fascinating. There's no end of permutations to um, what threat actors um, may want to do, may try to do. 
and trying to anticipate that, uh, it's just it's just a never-ending puzzle and uh, just fascinating. Does that answer your question? It, it does, and I was going to ask as well, which one of the threats that you have faced uh, has given you the most sleepless nights? Did you, do, you, did, do you think that the Soviet 8th Guards Army was as scary as some of the New Jersey street gangs that, that, that you looked at? Or? Well, see, with the Soviets, right, I was 18 and 19. So I, I of course, suffered from uh, that feeling of immortality that all 18, 19-year-olds have. So there's no way the Soviet army was going to take me out. Um, uh, so I wasn't worried about that. But as I got older, um, the most sleepless nights, um, I, I would say there were two instances. Um, one is um, far-right extremism um, has um, concerned me for, for several years now, um, and that uh, may be no great surprise. And I would say there was a period in um, I think it was probably 2015 into 2016, where um, I was I felt like I was getting particularly run down by ISIS. Um, I wasn't really concerned from a New Jersey state perspective that you know um, uh, Abu Bakr al Baghdadi was sort of looking at New Jersey and figuring out how he could uh, destroy our state. But there was a period, particularly during the Ramadan offensives that they had. Um, when just in terms of sort of keeping track of them, it became sort of, it, it was getting sort of demoralizing. Every day, every morning I'd wake up and there would be like, uh, it felt like there was, oh, there's another four attacks by ISIS. Oh, there's another three attacks. And that began to wear, um, I think on me and, and a couple members of my staff um, for a little bit. But uh, I think that's just an occupational hazard um, that you have, yeah. And Another thing which I find very interesting is you were responsible for developing some of the intelligence uh, analysis capabilities of the state of New Jersey. And uh, I believe that you, when you first went there, a lot of the work was like cut and pasted from federal reports and summaries and so forth and it wasn't taken very seriously but you wanted to really give it a wholesale uh, reform can you speak a little bit more about that yeah this is probably um the thing i'm most proud of in my career is in uh late 2014 um we got a new director in the new jersey office of homeland security and preparedness and i my understanding is the governor had given him the instruction that I don't even know what your intel folks do. We don't really see anything from them. We don't really hear anything about them. Like basically we seem to be irrelevant. So um, his name was, uh, uh, our director was Chris Rodriguez. He came from the agency and uh, is now in um, Washington DC uh, running the um, Homeland Security Agency down there. Um, and he, said that intelligence was going to be his primary um, focus. He wanted us to be an intelligence organization and um, created, um, um, brought in my boss, um, who was a former intel analyst, which was great, and charged me with running the, the analytics section of the, of the intel division. Um, and 
you know, one of those few opportunities you get in your career where I was essentially given carte blanche and just said, redo it. We don't like anything that's being done now. Just, you know, fix it. And for me, who has a bit of a big mouth for the previous uh, two or three years, I had been talking about, uh, you know, at the state level, Intel's not working right. It's, you know, they don't do this right. They don't do this right. This was my put up or shut up moment. And so there was a lot of pressure uh, on me to, uh, to make it work. And we really did. We um, sort of ripped everything down to the ground and, and began rebuilding from the bottom up. So that was everything from how we select, hire, and train our analysts. Um, took a totally new philosophy on that. Um, totally new product lines. Um, we were very clear about who we wanted our, who we thought our audience was and what, how we would define success. Um, we wanted to make sure we were adding value uh, to, to our customers. We didn't want to just be somebody else who, you know, like you implied, was cutting and pasting alerts that Department of Homeland Security was putting out. Like they were already putting it out. Why would we just sort of regurgitate that? Um, and we had we had a three-year run with that, and I was really pleased with the results. We um, I don't want to take all the credit for this, but I think we were ahead of the curve in identifying um, big intelligence gaps in domestic terrorism. That was one of the first things we identified and, and were determined to sort of close those gaps early in late 2014 into 2015. Um, we really wanted to produce unclassified intelligence. So I would say 90% of our products we released to the public. Um, and we wanted to focus on seeing if we could produce high quality products using open source intelligence. Um, our analysts, myself and our analysts, we did have access to classified information, but we knew most of our customers were not gonna have security clearances. And so what's the point of making a document that's secret if nobody can read it, right? Um, and many of our customers were mayors, chiefs of police, that sort of thing, who may not have had access, or even if they had a clearance, might not have had a facility to go read that, that document or hear that briefing. So we really wanted to push things down to the unclassified level. And um, for me, I wanted to develop a, a cadre of intelligence analysts that could hold their own anywhere, even in the IC they needed to. And um, I will pat myself on the back a little bit here. Um, I think we succeeded. Um, I am absolutely thrilled with where those analysts um, have gone in the um, intervening years. Uh, I, I couldn't be more proud of, of sort of where they've gone. It's been, it's been amazing. Where, where have they gone? Um, a couple have gotten promoted um, within the organization. Um, Two are working in the private sector, um, either as, uh, I don't know how much I can tell, one as a sort of a, a senior um, analyst, sort of running her own team, one um, as a contractor um, with an organization that's working with the Department of Defense on some um, uh, what appears to be pretty exciting stuff. One is in the IC now as a senior analyst, um, coming off of a couple of years building and running her own team. Uh, in, a, in a state fusion center. So that's pretty, and all of these folks are in their mid to late 20s. Like they're, they all, um, they almost all came to me brand new with um, almost no experience in the Intel field. 
and now at this um, really young age, probably 10 or 15 years ahead of where I was, um, you know, are are going to lap me um, by the time they get my, they get to my age, and that's that's awesome. I I'm so excited about it. Take us back to your legal pad at that point where you're writing down your ideas. Like, how do we get this raw material and make them intelligence analysts? Um, the, the first part is exactly what you um, imply there, which is you, we, we had to start with good raw material, right? We, we needed people who were highly motivated, um, really intellectually curious, um, had a good, um, a good sense of how important this job was for them. Uh, and we made sure that was clear when we brought them on. These were people who were 23, 24, right out of college. This was their first non-college um, uh, position. And we said, you're reporting to a cabinet secretary in the state government, and he's reporting directly to the governor. Like, there's no safety net here. Um, you know, your analysis is going right up. And if we're, if we're sloppy, if we're careless, um, that's going to reflect on the organization, and it's certainly going to reflect upon you, right? So they they had that sort of sense of importance. Um, uh, hopefully, without overwhelming them, they all did well, so uh, that was fine. But um, we rebuilt a new sort of orientation training process for them. So that was roughly um, a month of no work of um, teaching them some stru structured analytic techniques, um, teaching them what we know. I had, I had an amazing deputy um, who, uh, between us, we had a lot of sort of foundational knowledge of the threats and familiarity with the context of the state that we were operating in. And so we spent a lot of time talking about um, what we knew, trying to sort of give them a, uh, a good organized brain dump about the threat picture. Um, and pointing them in the right direction for sources. And once we had gone through that process of sort of, here's the parameters of our mission and here's some of the fundamentals, um, they all had their own portfolios, right? Which is not particularly unusual for, for Intel folks. Um, but we gave them then time and we said, okay, you're responsible for Hezbollah. Um, I'm gonna give you two weeks. Uh, um, I want you to sort of identify who, what are the sources of information that, um, that are going to be useful? And um, uh, what are the questions we can ask? What are the um, organizations we should be referring, we should be talking to to build that subject matter expertise? And we brought in some experts as well to come and talk to them directly. So some folks, um, listeners might be familiar with J.M. Berger and Clint Watts were amazingly gracious to us um, in sort of really spending a lot of time with our analysts in terms of training them and being resources and sounding boards for them um, and really encouraging these junior analysts since we were working in the open source sector to reach out to academics who might be experts in the field um, people who were or maybe former intelligence professionals who were out in the field maybe on social media and using them as resources as well and it was awkward at first. Um, a lot of the analysts, you know, um, did not know how to approach folks, um, didn't want to appear to be, um, uh, you know, ask the dumb question. But that dedicating that time um, and not just sort of in the initial phase of their training, but that was something we sort of emphasized as sort of an ongoing pursuit. 
taking that time, making that effort to build those connections and relationships um, really paid off. And once we started making those, we started doing outreach to the IC because since we were working in the unclassified realm, we could um, talk about topics and produce products that um, were of interest to our IC partners, but that they could not um, could not release at the unclassified level. And so um, in some cases, um, that built really good relationships. We would share our data sets with them, and um, likewise, they could um, share some data sets with us, right? We could share our analysis with them, make sure, hey, is this broadly consistent with, with your understanding, right? Um, and they could say yes or no, you're missing a really important part. Um, we recommend you don't you know, release that, right? And so we could, we could have that relationship. And all of that, that sort of relationship building and sort of forcing analysts out of their cubicles um, to go out and meet folks and ideally where it's possible work in those operation centers, um, that was essential, right? And sort of just continually keeping that um, in the forefront of our mind um, in terms of professional professional development, making that, hardwiring that into their um, their work was, was essential. So let's walk up to the present day. What is it you're doing now? Dean, I know that you're, uh, you also teach intelligence. Uh, but if you could give us an update on what, what kind of things you're up to at the moment, that would be great. Sure. So um, I do a little bit of adjunct teaching uh, with Rutgers University and DeSales University. Um, and that is a phenomenal experience. I recommend it highly. Uh, I really like teaching undergrads, um, a little bit of graduate students, but mostly undergrads. Um, and um, introduce them to the field of intelligence and hopefully convey a little bit of my enthusiasm for it and um, encourage them to consider it as a profession. Uh, so that's that's been a lot of fun. Uh, I really enjoy that. Um, and then I'm working now for a tech company called GitHub um, as their um, senior manager of intelligence and protective services, which uh, is an awesome sounding uh, job title. And I'm helping them right now, developing uh, as part of a, a larger security team, developing out their sort of security processes and procedures, right? So that's everything from executive protection and travel security and sort of physical security of their um, facilities, but also things like incident response uh, now with COVID, right? Uh, how do we keep all of our, we call our employees our hubbers, how do we keep all of our hubbers safe um, wherever they are around the world? and um, getting them ready for when COVID goes away and we start business traveling all over the world again, how do we make sure that they're going to be as safe as possible when they're um, when they are all over the world? And for people that don't know, what is GitHub? So GitHub is a platform for developers to share for software um, developers, programmers to share their code with each other um, so that they can either work on products uh, projects jointly. Um, or maybe just, um, uh, uh, gee, you developed this piece of code, I'm doing something totally separate, but man, that's perfect for what I need it for. You know, allow me to, you know, borrow that and sort of riff off of it. And so it's part of this um, a larger sort of open source movement um, in programming that's super exciting. It's a little bit beyond me. Uh, I'm not a programmer myself, but I do really 
um, the enthusiasm um, in this organization is is really amazing, and it's um, this is where when I earlier said that I I didn't know if I would find my relevance when I left the public sector, I found it. Um, and being able to help all these people stay safe so that they can do all these amazing things um, uh, in, while they're programming is, is just amazing. It's just great to be a part of. So um, uh, just to close out, I'm going to ask a question that's a, a tough one, but a very, on another level, very straightforward. What is intelligence? I mean, you've got, You've got something that a lot of people don't have and that you've worked against a variety of threats for different institutions uh, at different levels. Um, get, get, how do you understand this, this, this um, concept now? I, I'd say, and this is somebody else's um, framework, but I really like it. Um, I, you know, One of the ways I really like to see intelligence described is um, providing insight and context to a decision maker, right? Um, and that decision maker can be, it could be the president, it could be um, uh, a parent trying to decide whether it's safe for their kids to go to school or not. But it is it is providing that, that insight and context that they would not otherwise have, right? Um, and we can um, pretty it up with all sorts of other sort of terms, but I find that really powerful because it um, it is, going beyond sort of the superficial who, what, when, where, why, but it's the so what, what's next, um, why should I care answers. Um, that uh, that really is the essence of it. I mean, it's it's pretty simple, yeah. And is there anything that you think it, that's important for our listeners to hear that we haven't touched upon or that we haven't covered, or do you think we've done a pretty decent job. Gee, I, I, uh, I think we've done pretty good. I hope this is useful uh, or, or useful, entertaining for, for your listeners. For those of your listeners who aren't in the field, um, but maybe considering it, uh, I can't recommend it enough. I, I cannot imagine any other job I would rather have than be in this profession and field. I just love it. I could talk about it all day long. So Andrew, um, uh, yeah, it's probably best we, we stop sooner okay. rather than later. Oh, in fact, one more question that I did mean to ask you is, I believe that you've got some up uplifting thoughts for people that throw their arms up in the air with regards to millennials and Gen Xers. Well, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer, so I'm... Yes. I'm sorry, Gen mental. Z, sorry. I'm, I'm a Gen Xer yeah. too. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so so look, I'm sure just like just like me, um, when I'm out with people of my generation, I hear this, you know, the same refrain over and over. Ah, oh, kids today, they got it easy. They all want a participation trophy. Um, I don't know. That may be true in some places, but I have continually been impressed um, by um, both the uh, millennials and the Gen Zers. Um, they are way beyond what me and my knucklehead friends were at their age. Um, the dedication, the motivation I've seen um, has been um, amazing. And that's not just among sort of, you know, the superstars that I may have been fortunate enough to hire. I've, you know, like I said, I, I've done several um, undergraduate classes. 
overwhelming. These are students who um, uh, are, are just amazing. They just, they just um, really are remarkable. And so um, I have a lot of faith in them and I am glad that in my dotage, I will be in their hands. I am, uh, I'm very confident they're gonna take good care of me. Okay, so that's that's an uplifting place to close off. It just shows you that it's not all about avocado toast and seven dollar flat whites. That's right, exactly. <laughs> well, thank thanks so much, Dean. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you very much, Andrew. I appreciate the uh, I appreciate the opportunity and love this podcast. The International Spy Museum is a full five hundred one c three non profit. If you want to donate to the museum or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes, and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.